Where I grew up, the mornings never sounded like this. And yet somehow I've grown to love the bombardment of street sounds, even before I've had my morning coffee. No, maybe I should provide more context or something. Okay. It's 5.45 a.m. Well, really, who, who can resist the snooze button? It's 6.10 a.m. The morning begins. should probably cut right to the chase get to the get to the the gristle the meat the the message okay the rush of the subway fills the station silencing the morning commuters the next stop of course was Lansdowne The metaphor of the situation was not lost on me. Oh, uh, well, I was in the middle of something here, but um, let's set you up on a mic here. Okay. One more time, give me a check on that mic. Mic check, mic check, check. Microphone check, one, two. Did you say mic check? I said mic, yeah, I said mic check. Anyways. Hey, Glenn. Hi, Spacing Radio co-producer Neil Hinchley. Uh, so you just kind of walked in on me and definitely not, I didn't stage this at all. Right. But, uh, I was just recording the intro to our anniversary episode. Is it our anniversary? This is one year we've been doing this. Holy cow. So I thought like as a little gift, I'd uh, give you a little bit of a break and, uh, and I would record a, you know, a little kind of artsy kind of intro kind of thing. It was about like sound and the city and... I hadn't totally thought it through fully, but uh, I think it was going okay. Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted. Well, it's okay. You know, maybe next year I'll I'll get one done completely. But this is your baby. Let's give it back to you. You, you want me to start it off? Let's start it off. Okay. <clears throat> wait, wait. The- oh, hold on a second. Is it okay if I say it this time? Just this once. Buddy, please. Neil Hinchley, everyone. All right. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting once again from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we speak to the creator of Toronto's very own superhero. And we speak to a prominent architect about what we need to do to preserve our city's heritage. But first, one year ago, Council approved a pilot project to test bike lanes on Bloor Street. We took you to the celebration party where activists, councillors, and city staff celebrated a victory decades in the making. Now, we speak to Cycle Toronto Executive Director Jared Kolb about how to make these lanes a permanent feature. Stand by. (music) 
The Bloor Bike Lane project was decades in the making. As data starts to come in from the pilot project study, cycling activists and detractors are preparing for a battle over whether or not to make these lanes permanent. City feedback and polls all suggest the lanes have the majority of support. Still, there are some who are willing to sacrifice even people's safety if it means a faster commute for drivers. We sat down with Cycle Toronto's Jared Kolb to talk about building consensus around the Bloor Lanes and other cycling projects around the city. All right, so Jared, uh, Spacing Radio is celebrating a little birthday. Uh, it's been one year since we relaunched uh, the platform, and um, our very first episode, we, we got to uh, uh, take part in, in the celebration. Uh, uh, it had just uh, come to light that City Council had approved uh, the pilot project for bike lanes on Bloor, and uh, it was a very exciting time. Uh, it's been one year. Uh, what are we looking at now? Well, it's, uh, it has been, it's been a heck of a year. Uh, and I think what we've seen uh, on um, the street itself is we've seen, uh, I think, a remarkable success, um, especially from a, from a cycling perspective. If we look back to that one year ago, um, you know, it was a, it was a landslide victory at, at City Council by a vote of uh, 38 to 3 in the end to approve the pilot project. Um, and so here we are. What we've seen um, is that the ridership on the street has, has really um, increased. So before the lanes were put in, City estimates that about 3,000 people uh, were using uh, the, that stretch between um, on Bloor Street between Bathurst and Spadina. About 3,000 people were cycling that stretch per day. Um, in, uh, in last, by last fall, which was about six or seven weeks after the lanes were installed, that number was up to about 4,300 people using it per day. There's already some preliminary counts out um, from May, which are suggesting that it's now over 5,500 um, cyclists using that stretch per day. And, you know, I think we're going to see that number go up uh, throughout the summertime. So I think that um, it's, a, it's a really exciting project. It's a project with a lot of history. Uh, and so uh, it's um, so far it's been it's been a, a big success from a from a cycling perspective. And it was 70 years in the making, is that correct? <laughs> That's right. It, it's been since the dawn of time. Uh, and the, uh, I think the, the advocacy project really kicked up back in the 70s with some early recommendations. Uh, then there was another report in the 90s which, which uh, recommended uh, installation on Bloor. Uh, and then from a really strong advocacy perspective, uh, you know, we saw Bells on Bloor uh, launch you know, with an, uh, their rides uh, in um, you know, the first decade of, of the new millennium. And, uh, and then we We've at Cycle Toronto have been working on it for the last five years or so, uh, and so it's. Um, I think there's a huge number of community actors that are involved in this. Uh, you know, really strong support from the local councillors, from local residents, uh, and I think that there's there's been a huge number of people involved. And I think uh, it's in some ways in this city, it uh, it takes a village to build a bike lane, uh, and it's uh, so it's an exciting time. And something interesting about the the Bloor bike lanes is that uh, from from the very get go, it seems that you've had strong support from the BIAs, uh, which a lot of times the pushback uh, against bike lanes will come from the businesses, and this doesn't seem to be the case with the Bloor lanes. Yeah, we've so what we've seen really is some support coming from those BIAs, and you're you're totally right. That being said, you know we have seen some um, uh, local businesses, uh, individual businesses raising some concerns um, about you know lost business um, concerns around parking. Um, 
concerns around loading. And we've been you know, really thrilled to see the local councillors as well as city staff working on a site-by-site basis to make improvements to the street. Um, I think that this also needs to be contextualized, though, in the broader uh, trend, which is uh, people, uh, their shopping habits changing. Um, you, we're certainly seeing a move to or away from shopping um, you know, at department stores and, um, depart- and, and locally in some respects. Um, that being said, I, I think that uh, the studies from across North America have demonstrated that when we build protected bike lanes, um, we see an increase uh, in uh, retail sales across virtually all types of businesses with the ex- one exception of, of grocery stores. Um, and perhaps that plays out intuitively. Maybe you can load more, car- more, more groceries into a car um, than you can onto a bike. But um, I think what we're, we're going to see results coming back from a study led by the Toronto Centre for Active Transportation uh, and the, the University of Toronto. That'll come later this year as well. Uh, and I, I'm anticipating we'll see, again, uh, an increase on a uh, number of the different components of retail sales on Bloor. Because uh, some recent feedback did say that I think 52% of uh, the businesses in the area had, had some concerns about, uh, about the design and about, as you said, parking and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, we've we've met with several businesses, and, and what we've heard is that um, again, there's there's businesses who love the lanes, there's businesses who who don't, and who have had concerns. And the concerns seem to be primarily around uh, loading uh, on the street. And so it's a I think what we're we're the city is has been experimenting with a new kind of design, and this has been a challenge I think in the city is that there are many different types of protected bike lanes and bicycle lanes in the city. Uh, and so I think the city city staff are continuing to tweak and work out what is the new standard. Uh, and so what we're seeing with that design on Bloor Street with the parking protected style of bike lane uh, is that, especially in the annex, it's a really narrow street. Uh, and so uh, that means that it's a fairly narrow right-of-way that um, with a narrow bike lane uh, and uh, for loading and unloading, it has been a challenge. So I'm again, I'm anticipating that we'll see from the city uh, more tweaks along that um, and potential design changes. Right, and like you said, uh, a lot of the studies uh, where major bike lanes have been added, uh, uh, they have shown an increase in business. What, what you might be talking about, about the changing climate, is uh, there's a lot more online uh, shopping, that kind of thing, uh, changing shopping habits. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it, it remains true that um, you know you, you might drive to an Ikea big box outlet, but you don't drive to the artisanal cheese shop in your neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, and this is one thing that I think uh, more and more businesses, especially Main Street Toronto businesses, are recognizing is that, um, you know, if, if they, w- when they're thinking about who they're competing with, um, you know, if if they're trying to style themselves as catering to the automobile, um, oftentimes they're going to lose. Um, you know, they, they can't compete on price, um, especially when in comparison to, you know, a, a big box outlet like the Golden Mile. Um, or other uh, spots across Toronto and the GTA, um, but what they can compete on is is quality, uh, and there's a I think some fantastic businesses along that stretch of Bloor Street, and so um, I think uh, I think we're gonna again we're gonna see more uh, of an embrace um, of those lanes as we move forward. Um, the change is hard, uh, and I think we've seen that in virtually you know all cases of bike lane installation across North America is you know you you push the status quo and and the status quo pushes back. Uh, and so, again, I, I think we're seeing a lot of positive things on Bloor. And we're seeing local residents really embrace the lanes. 
Uh, and uh, we're seeing drivers say they feel safer driving on on that stretch of Bloor now since the bike lanes have been installed. So, you know, I, I think across um, virtually all indicators, uh, this this project is going to be is going to be a success. And important to remember that this was a pilot project that we, uh, in some ways, it was uh, an informa information gathering experience. Uh, there was uh, a lot of noise made about uh, an increase uh, of eight minutes in, in uh, drive time in certain stretches on Bloor. Uh, and then the city came back and sort of retimed some of the intersections uh, to help uh, ameliorate that. Uh, so th this has always been an experiment and, and there's lots of room for, for perfecting it. Yeah, certainly. The I think the the, the data from the city around um, you know increase in, in travel times. I think that's got to be contextualized and and thought about in the context of the peak of the peak. Uh, so we're talking about you know evening rush hour, uh, fifteen minutes. Um, we're seeing that increase of eight minutes um, to get from you know Shaw to Avenue Road, or I'm sorry, from Avenue to Shaw. Um, but uh, and we're, we're city staff, of course, have gone out and and uh, retimed intersections and signals and whatnot. And so that's really great to see. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what we're seeing on that street is that prior to the installation of the lanes, um, the, the street was, was a parking lot. Uh, and for the vast majority of the day, uh, it functioned, you know, as one, you know, lane of travel in each direction. It's still that case today. It's just that we've replaced um, a bunch of that parking with uh, a safe place to travel for people who ride bicycles. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's important to remember that uh, it's, it's not... Um, we, we, I think maybe in this moment in the city of Toronto, we are a city of pilots. Uh, we, we don't want to get too carried away. We don't want to be too ambitious. Uh, and so I think the amount of political will that went in to get that 2.5 kilometer stretch of bike lane was extraordinary. Uh, and I think from our perspective and what we hear at the door when we're talking to folks uh, in the community is uh, we, we want more of it. Uh, and we want to see that pilot extended, not only made permanent, but also extended east and west. Uh, to create more connection points. And speaking to the idea of political will, um, we, the city, cycling is always an emotional uh, topic in the city, and um, and we seem to be saying two different things uh, from from City Hall. Uh, one is that, you know, we've had a number of deadly years uh, involving road deaths, uh, and uh, we're, we're making noises about Vision Zero, this idea that we can uh, eliminate uh, road fatalities completely uh, in a number of years, and there's been some movement towards that, but um, on the other hand, uh, you you will hear people uh, kick and scream about uh, an extra couple of minutes to their drive time. So, uh, how, <laughs> how do you sort of balance these these two competing ideas that we want to be a safe city and we want to be a multimodal city, but uh, you know, don't don't add an extra minute to my my time in the car? <laughs> right, right, right. I you know when when people are are pressed and when they're asked. Uh, uh, you know, do you support Vision Zero? Do you support eliminating, um, you know, road fatalities and serious injuries in our in our city? The vast, you know, it's, uh, one poll that I saw was like, you know, 99% of the population said yes. And I, quite frankly, I don't want to even think about uh, who that other 1% was. Um, but uh, uh, I think that when pressed as well and taken to a much further, I think Torontonians embrace the idea that um, safety is is everyone's number one concern. And and at the end of the day, if if it means is it taking a few minutes longer to get home? Um, at the end of the day, if, if everyone's getting home safe, I think that's something we can, we can all agree on.
Canada is oversaturated in American media, their TV shows, music, movies, and literature. With so much on offer south of the border, we sometimes neglect to tell our own stories. We don't realize how starved we are for these stories until someone shows us it's possible to tell them. Jason Liu is a comic book artist who decided Toronto needed its own superhero. The pitiful human lizard was born. When he turned to crowdfunding to finance the first volume of tales about his Hogtown hero, he received $1,500 more than the $6,000 fundraising goal. We speak to Jason about his creation and about representing Toronto, its people, and places in comics. So Jason, first of all, who is Lucas Barrett? Lucas Spirit is a nine-to-five office clerk who masquerades as a superhero to fight um, crime around Toronto, uh, and also just the boredom in his life. He, he just wants to find entertainment in his life, so he, that's why he dresses up as a costume as well. And he has a cast of characters to help him along? Uh, yeah, he's got Majestic Rat, who is a very close friend of his since childhood, who've decided to uh, be in a superhero endeavor as well. Um, and there is Lady Accident, who started off as a fourth grade teacher who who dated Lucas, and then later on found out that uh, she could be a better superhero than him because he's kind of pathetic. And there is Mother Wonder, who is Toronto's busiest superhero. Uh, she's like the Superman in my universe. Right, and uh, you know that. At first glance, the the book can sometimes uh, come off as a bit of a send up of of the superhero genre, but really, it's ultimately lovingly told. Like I assume you grew up with these books, like Spider Man, that kind of thing. Definitely, definitely. Just like the old Marvel comics, where New York was a, a character in their books, I wanted Toronto to be the same in in my book, and just have that that fun, positive vibe, and, and just full of amazement that that. Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko did with with the old Marvel comics from the sixties. And as as someone who who loves Toronto, as I, I know you do, uh, the striking and the really fun thing about it is seeing locales like Honest Ed's or the BJJ near Christie Pitts or you know, the, the Lakeview Diner. Um, uh, were you uh, grown grown up in Toronto, or what's the love affair with Toronto? Um. Yeah, like it. So like I was I was I was born and raised in the suburbs in in, in Brampton and my, my parents would always take me to Toronto because that was the only Chinatown <laughs> around. Uh, there there were no Chinatowns around uh, Brampton or Mississauga, and so we'd always make our weekly trips there. And uh, even as I grew older, like we would like just do all these walks around like Harborfront and uh, Eden Center and stuff. I just grew up thinking like Toronto is the place that I want to live in, like once I can afford it. And um, you know, after college and and doing some freelance jobs as an illustrator, and yeah, I've been living in Toronto for about eight years, and I just love exploring different alleyways and streets uh, that would help inspire stories for my comic book. So you're a bit of an urbanist, a bit of a flaneur. Oh yeah, like uh so I, I live around like around High Park area and uh like Swansea and I, I love taking like weekly walks from where I live to like all the way to Young and Dundas which is about like a three hour walk. Uh 
And in, in between those walks, like, I would go through, like, Dufferin Grove or Liberty Village. Uh, just just explore different paths uh, and, and try not to repeat the same ones and, and, and find my inspiration. And that makes its way into the books. Exactly. And also what makes its way into the books, not only is Toronto physically represented, but uh, uh, the diversity of, of the city is represented in characters like Lucas Bear is uh, an Asian Canadian and Mother Wonder is, is a, a woman of color uh, and uh, uh, the Majestic Rat is uh, on Grinder sometimes, although he's a little bit heartbroken. Yeah. Um, like hopefully it just comes natural to these uh, to these characters. And like, like I, I've, you know, like, Living in the suburbs and 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 Toronto, like we're just surrounded by just a lot of diverse people, and I, I thought, like, you know, like, might as well celebrate that in the comic. And it is natural; it's not a heavy-handed kind of moralistic thing, but it, it is very Toronto in a way that I think readers will appreciate. But uh, it does also come in the context uh, of a comic culture where. Recently this year, a Marvel VP of sales said that uh, that women and diversity were the reasons that uh, comic book sales are down. Obviously, that is probably not at all the case, and, and probably quite the opposite is true. But uh, you kind of uh, take it in, in a different direction. Uh, can you speak a little bit about like the challenge of diversity in comics? Um, well, like like another reason why like I added diversity in, in my comics was it like in hopes that. For one, it it best represents Toronto, but also it, it would stand out compared to all the other titles. Uh, like Mother Wonder is 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 like my anti Superman in a way, who's like all powerful, but she like uh, yeah she she she's uh, a a mother of, of three, and and she she doesn't have like the stereotypical body type that most superheroes are drawn um she, she's like a, just a natural built female that that anyone can relate to and and, and that's i want my, all of my readers to, to look at the comic like they can see themselves in these characters or they 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 can recognize them as 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 friends they've met off the street Tell me a bit about the Canadian uh, comic book culture. I mean, it, it seems uh, it seems to be growing for, uh, as a, someone who appreciates comic books. Um, and uh, recently, there was some news uh, that uh, your your imprint, Chapter House Comics, has uh, enlisted uh, actor, producer, director Jay Baruchel uh, to become the chief creative officer. Uh, it, are we having a little bit of a, a moment? Are we blowing up? Uh, yeah, like you, you know, like about three years ago, we we kind kind of had this like. Uh, a resurgence of uh, the the Canadian comic book superhero genre renaissance, uh, and it all started with some kickstarters with Nelvana of the Great White North, uh, which was uh, a character back in World War Two, created in World War Two that got reprinted by Hope Nicholson and Rachel Ritchie, and Captain Canuck also came back as well, and. I thought, hey, like I, I want to get in in on this as well, and I want to create a character that's like a very offbeat Canadian that doesn't have to like wear a maple leaf uh, to be identified as Canadian. So, human lizard is is there. Then slowly, more characters started to like emerge as well, and and Chapter House got established and, and acquired some of the rights to like other old Canadian superheroes from World War. 
two, like Freelance, that they've recently brought back, that Jim Zub and, and Andrew Wheeler are write, co-writing. And But when I'm at conventions, like people are, are very supportive to, to see homegrown talent working on Canadian superheroes that, that a new generation of, of readers can look up to. And there are still people that are surprised there is a character named Captain Canuck and like thinking that this is a brand new character, but no, like he's been around for uh, over 40 years. And uh, with the help of, of Jerry, Jay Barishaw, like we, like hopefully that, that will create a, a bigger buzz for, for Canadian superheroes and, and, and also just, just the Canadian comic book market. Does the appetite that we have globally now for superheroes, uh, where it's not just a niche thing, uh, it's not a subculture, it's it's on the big screen, it, it's blowing up the box office every summer at least, um, does that create an appetite for Canadian superheroes? Um, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. Um, like right now with 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 Jay Bearshall on board, like uh, we we need Canadian fans to recognize that there are Canadian superheroes first and then get them excited about that. And then we, we just got to like, just, just get the masses of, of Canadian fans to be excited and be on board to, to have um, Canadian superheroes on the big screen or even on, on TV as well. I would give anything to see a pitiful human lizard movie. <laughs> I hope so too, and you know it's, it's it can be very low budget because he's just an ordinary guy, and it can just be shot like a a TV drama. All right, well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, my pleasure! Thanks for having me. And you can hear more about Jason and a host of other Toronto comic book artists in the latest issue of Spacing, available in stores now. Michael McClelland is the founding principal at ERA Architects. Much of his work focuses on heritage planning and conservation. There's an ongoing debate about how best to protect the city's heritage resources. Listeners will recall earlier this year when a 110-year-old bank was abruptly torn down. What heritage is and how to preserve it is a complex conversation, but Michael has some ideas about how to go about it. My name is Michael McClelland. I'm a heritage architect. Uh, we have an office. Uh, it's ERA, ERA Architects. We have an office of about uh, 80, 90 people. And all we do is look at heritage and cultural issues in the city. We're working in different cities, but a lot of our work is in uh, right in downtown Toronto. And uh, downtown Toronto is uh, full of uh, heritage issues that uh, we sometimes struggle with. Uh, you, you recently published uh, an editorial in, in the Toronto Star with uh, some ideas about how we could better protect our heritage uh, pieces. Yeah, I think uh, heritage is a very interesting field these days because uh, it's a non-stop kind of thing. Uh, what's heritage, what's not heritage. And and you ask different people and they come up with very different answers. And so um, the city's response is we're going as fast as we can, we're trying to, we're trying to designate these buildings, um, but in fact they're, they're slipping back and they're, they're missing, a lot of buildings are getting demolished and that was the point of that article was that there was a nice bank building on Young Street and thought, well, how did that get demolished and it got a demolition permit. Um, so I, in response to that I wrote an article sort of saying there's a couple things we're not doing right. We're trying to designate a lot of buildings, and designation is a big process. And I said, why don't we just, as we had done in the past, why don't we just flag them? 
just so that the building department goes, hey, this building's flagged. You can't get a demolition permit right away. Uh, you've got to talk to other people in the city. And they could make a decision then. They could sort of say, well, we flagged it. it wasn't, it's not that we just want to talk to you about it, or we flagged it. It's really important. And so that flagging process is called listing heritage buildings. And uh, the other push I was doing is, like, why don't we just do that throughout the entire city? Because um, the other thing that's happening that's interesting is this is all about the downtown core. It's everything in the downtown core if it's if it walks and talks like the heritage building, right? So, um, um, but Toronto's a big city, and so we're we're incentivizing value in the downtown core and ignoring the rest of the city, and that's an interesting issue because I think you'd say, well, there aren't any old buildings in suburbia, but in fact, the question is, if you're a kid growing up in a neighborhood in Scarborough. There's, there's a history to your neighborhood. There's a history to the thing. And there's an idea about what do you value about your neighborhood? What do you think are the important things? What do you think are the landmarks? Where are the significant buildings? In fact, a lot of cool modernist stuff is in the suburbs. So basically, heritage is everywhere. History is everywhere. And, and I think um, uh, trying to take that larger picture is really, really valuable. Right. So in the downtown, uh, as you've said, there, there have been uh, a couple of very upsetting uh, issues where where a piece of heritage architecture almost under cover of night disappeared. Um, so your your proposal to list these things as we used to do, take a sort of a rolling stock of uh, of what we have. Uh, why is that not being done? Do you know? Well, I think the city's approach is uh, we must designate and we must uh, be ironclad in our reasons for designation and uh, presumably that's to fight at the OMB. Well, if we don't actually have an OMB anymore. Can't we take a different approach? Uh, you know, we could maybe th- think that through. Also, it doesn't necessarily win you at the OMB. I think the listing process is is totally adequate. Um, and it's just a different approach. And it, I think also um, heritage is more than just fighting developers. Like it's just like if it's all built up to a big big armored fight with developers, then you, you've got to be you got to pick your battles very carefully. But if in fact you're trying to work with people to sort of say. What are the cool buildings in the neighborhood? Why don't you appreciate these? Why don't you understand them uh, better? Uh, why don't you put value on them? It doesn't have to be a battle. And, uh, yeah, certainly we've seen uh, some, some more recent uh, examples of developers working in good faith. Uh, we've seen uh, some examples of developments starting uh, with community consultations before there's even any, any sketches or <laughs> any yeah. real concept of, the, of what the building will be. Um, and so... You're thinking we can we can have a, you know, a more friendly. Uh, we we don't have to prepare for a fight. Yeah, I think I think it's very funny uh, in the in the states there are all kinds of economic incentives like there's all kinds of tax benefits people get. So in the states, it's it's um, uh, very clear that heritage is, plays a big role in city building. In Toronto, it should play a bigger role, but, but in this kind of uh, sticks and carrots kind of idea, we don't have any any carrots we just have sticks and those are both for barnyard animals they're not really for people you want to work with so it's a, it's not really the right approach to sort of we need sticks and carrots what you do need is to, to consider everyone to say basically everyone's got some interest in uh history of the of the city and how to build on that creatively and constructively is a great thing so from the city's perspective uh, they want uh, an airtight case in case it does go to the OMB but uh, you're saying um, part of the piece that really interests me is uh, that you could actually enlist uh, sort of uh, local 
um, volunteer people who who are already very interested in the heritage value of their community. Yeah, I think I think there's a whole uh, unutilized core of people like Heritage Toronto, um, people who've got. Um, and they could go through kind of accreditation or something, but basically how you how you list buildings and and learn more. And in doing that, they learn more about their uh, about their neighborhood. It's interesting in the because I think the the idea about fighting development as as a, a main reason for doing heritage leads to a very funny picture because it inevitably means that there's more fights happening in the downtown core. There's more heritage in the downtown core things become more valuable in the downtown core. It just leads inevitably to a gentrification, whereas the rest of the city is ignored. And I think an opposite strategy would be to look at the whole city and start to think of the bigger picture, bigger brush. And sure, I think also people might say, I'm an expert, but I really think value, what actually matters to people, has to come from people. You have to listen to the community. What do they think is important? Um, and we're hearing that all the time. We're saying, well, we're too busy to deal with that. And I don't think that's the right answer. And another big thing that we talk about a lot in Toronto right now is, is the sort of heritage conservation districts. Um, you, you've said before that that can be a, a bit of a blunt tool. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a terribly bit of a blunt tool. And the other interesting thing, again, if you're thinking of the whole city, once you do a heritage district, you're saying what's in the heritage district counts, what's outside the heritage district, a block away, whatever, doesn't count. Um, and so it's a very binary black and white kind of scenario. It's also they're also very expensive to do. So they're they're outrageously expensive to do, and you sort of wonder. Let's balance this out. What are we getting for doing that? And how can we continue? How many heritage districts are we going to do in the next ten years in the city of Toronto? Are we ever going to get to addressing the kid in Scarborough who says there's no history in my neighborhood? Right. And, and sometimes those, those conservation districts uh, have been accused of, of uh, being less about preservation and more about nimbyism. We want our neighborhood to look exactly the way it does so that our property values are the same and the same kind of people live here. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I feel badly for nimbyism. It's, it's, an, odd, uh, it's an odd thing, and, and uh, it's not good planning. Um, but the other thing about the heritage districts, for example, if you designate Kensington Market... You can't ensure that the cheese shop is going to stay there. So the things that are cultural values, the things that are really heritage, are, are actually often intangible things. They're not really the tangible things. So there's often these things, it's about the character of a street corner or uh, the, the, the food and smell you get in, in Kensington Market or um, it's the cultural differences or the use of the place. And, and so um, having... Um, Really cool businesses and loft buildings downtown is really great, but you can keep the loft building, but that doesn't mean it's going to keep the cool businesses. So there's some really um, problematic issues related to economics and cultural uses that don't uh, work well in heritage districts. Yeah, it was something I was thinking of um, watching a sort of struggle in Vancouver where they're, they're looking to preserve their Chinatown. It makes me wonder, well, what is a Chinatown? Is it the type of architecture? Is it the type of use, the type of buildings? Is it the people there? Is it all of it? Is it some sort of holistic combination? And how, how do you protect that, and what do you protect? Well, I think that's a really good question. And the, the interesting thing is that, again, it's like the character of areas and the things that you, you love and appreciate. And Vancouver is its Chinatown. Uh, we've got the Gay Village with Church and Wellesley. Um, we've got um, Kensington Market. We have many places that are really cool, interesting places. How do you 
What are, you, what are you trying to do when you say we must keep it the way it is? Or is that nostalgia? Is that um, uh, could it could it be, for example, you might want to take something like 401 Richmond, which is a fantastic place, and sort of say, not only can we keep this, but how could we make more of them? Like or Kensington Market, how could we how could we free up uh, certain types of zoning characteristics so we could actually have more Kensington Markets? Uh, why aren't there Kensington Markets in Scarborough? You know why? You know just can we take the quality of the places and really figure out how to work with them? Right. Well, a lot of people say that uh, we're you can't legally build Toronto as it is today. No, no, no. All the good bits weren't planned, right? That's a, that's essentially the character of Toronto. All the good bits weren't planned, and and. Uh, Unfortunately, when we do try to plan, we tend to over-regulate ourselves. So you go to a street corner and there's, there's eight red lights. You know, it's just way too much stuff. There's way too much uh, control on the things that we do. And picking up on something, uh, sort of a last thread, um, you know, you mentioned the kid in Scarborough doesn't feel like he, his neighborhood has, uh, has any heritage value um, we have a very bad habit, uh, or have had in the past in, in Toronto, of knocking down old things and starting fresh all over again. A lot of people criticize, criticize uh, those modernist buildings or the brutalist architecture uh, that you find in the inner suburbs, but there is a group, a contingent of people that really love and respect it. And so uh, I think maybe what I'm hearing is that uh, that's the next big step to, uh, to watch and make sure that we don't throw that baby out with the bathwater and start again. Yeah, I know exactly. We, we did a book called Concrete Toronto, uh, which was just about that, because I was, at the time, I was annoyed that people didn't like Robert's library, for example. And I said, well, come on, you've got to look at it carefully. So that's the thing about history and heritage, is that it keeps evolving. So what we think is most important now, 10 years from now, there'll be a whole set of other ideas about things that are important. And I think, um, I, I, I would suggest, for example, that uh, immigrant histories, so people who come from other countries, the things that they bring with them, the culture they bring with them is going to be Toronto's history. And it's really important to kind of recognize that. Includes their food, which is fantastic, right? So, uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, for sure, uh, the, the current wave is um, modernist buildings are now evaluated much more interestingly than they had been in the past. And other things, modernist landscapes uh, or 70s planning ideas are all things that now people are starting to appreciate, which means that the, if it's a Victorian row house, you must preserve it, is out of date, with, is out of step with the times. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing you this show each month. The year has blown by really quickly. We're going to continue to try and bring you the interesting corners of Canadian cities and find you expert voices to help unpack what makes these cities tick. And we'd love to hear from you. Don't hesitate to find us on social media and let us know what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear. Uh, hey. Oh, what's up, Neil? Uh, I was just wondering what you thought of my intro. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty good, yeah. I, th- I, think you, I think you nailed it. Anyways, hold on, hold on just a second. I just want to get something, and uh, let's just pause it here, and I'll be back in just a second. <clears throat> okay, sorry, I'm back. Here I am. And uh, hey, I got a little something for you from uh, Toronto's own Henderson Brewing. Let's uh, celebrate a year. Cheers, bud. 
as you were. So in the coming year, we're going to try extra hard to bring you stories. Oh, this is good beer. In the coming year, we're going to try extra hard to bring you stories from outside Toronto and even greater diversity of topics and continue to pursue ongoing stories. As it is our one-year anniversary, we will be accepting gifts. Uh, we don't need much, but if you're looking for ideas, how about some bike lanes on Bloor? Uh, maybe a comprehensive list of potential heritage sites? You know, something small. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your favorite architect, your life drawing class, and your local baker. As always, if you rate, share, or subscribe on iTunes, you'll be helping us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley. Hi, Neil. Hello. Who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all written out with words, just so you know. Please hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio. That's all one word. Or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. That's also all written out in words. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto where you can pick up our latest parks issue. Until next time, tell your local counselor you love the Blue Bike Lanes. I actually do. They're amazing. Cheers. <laughs>